I invite you to turn over in your bulletin over to page three. That's where we'll find our, our passage this morning printed out, as well as an outline for, um, for our message this morning. We're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, picking up where we left off a couple weeks ago. In chapter six, you might recall what this portion of Ephesians is about. Paul is addressing the various relationships within the, the typical Roman household and showing how the gospel is to grip and transform those relationships. So, so far we've seen Paul address husbands and wives, parents and children, and this week he talks to us about bond servants and masters. Uh, in the Roman world, uh, there was, in many, way, in many times, close to a third of the population that, that would be considered bond servants or slaves. And so the typical Roman household would, would have uh, servants in it, many of them. And so the, the, how does the gospel apply there in the midst of that household relationship? Well, that's what we're going to look at and talk about. But first, let's read God's word. Uh, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Let's give attention to God's word. Bond servants. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free." Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Our great God, we do pray that you would send your spirit uh, to use your word to strengthen and equip and give us understanding uh, beyond our own gifts and abilities to glorify your name. Even here, even through this passage, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian gospel works everywhere. That's how Dr. Sinclair Ferguson begins his discussion of this passage. The Christian gospel works everywhere. Here's what he goes on to say. There are no circumstances in which the Christian gospel is irrelevant. There is no situation so strange or so difficult that a Christian could ever say, here's a situation too strange and too difficult for the gospel of Jesus Christ to work. I think that's a really helpful way to begin to wrap our minds around a difficult passage of Scripture. And it's going to take us some wrestling with a variety of different things to get there, but that's where we're going to circle back to. The Christian gospel works, and it works everywhere. But to get there, we're going to have to wrestle with a, a challenging passage of Scripture. And I think it's helpful from the beginning uh, to admit right out that this, this is a challenging passage. Uh, it's good to admit that. 
Uh, maybe maybe you've been in, in Bible studies in the past where, where this comes along in a study of Ephesians, and it's kind of quickly transitioned to, well, let's talk, how to be, talk about how to be a good Christian worker or a good Christian boss. Um, those are not bad applications, but if we very quickly make that transition, we kind of oversimplify the text. We kind of miss the, the challenge to, to wrestle through it. Uh, and and it's, it's probably good to admit that, uh, that this is challenging. Uh, and, and probably good for, 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 for us to admit that for some it's even more challenging than others. I mean, it's easy for me to make a transition of, oh, okay, let's just talk about how to be a good Christian, uh, good Christian manager in the workplace. I can kind of make that transition pretty easily, but it's probably good for me to admit to myself that I have millions of Christian brothers and sisters who, when they read these same words, masters, slaves, it brings up very personal, very painful connotations in their own family history. And it's probably good for me to, to recognize that, wrestle with it, and make sure that we're really doing justice to the text and not just quickly moving on to a more comfortable subject. Um, it is a one we're going to wrestle through. And I hope at the end of the day, it gets us to doing what the scripture is always designed to do, which is show us the Lord Jesus. And I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna get there, but we're gonna have to, have to wrestle through it. And on the outline gives us our, our kind of basic path. We're gonna go through four basic points to get there, talking about the context of the day, the context of the Bible, and then getting into the specific commands that Paul gives in Ephesians 6. And I trust at the end of the day, we're gonna come back to Jesus and this really good news that the Christian gospel works everywhere. But first, let's begin with the context of the day. We have to understand what Paul is actually speaking into. Slavery in the Roman world uh, was a much broader concept than what is typically in our minds. Uh, 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 typically, when we hear the word slavery, we automatically think uh, American slavery in the 18th, 19th century. Uh, but in the Roman world... Uh, the, the institution, the notion of slavery was, was just much broader, including things in our minds that we don't associate in that category. And it's important to, to, to know that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, slavery was, or bond service, was, was pervasive in that, in that day. Close to a third, in some cases, uh, of the population were, were bond servants. Uh, but, but slavery could include a collection of a very wide uh, collection of circumstances. Uh, so some were, were servants because they were prisoners of war. That was very common. Uh, others born into slavery because their parents, when they were born, uh, were, were bond servants, and therefore, uh, for a period, they too uh, were, were under service, under, under slavery. But there were also many who entered into bond service voluntarily, um, which is kind of a very odd notion for us, but that was, was true. Uh, you could voluntarily enter into service for a particular period of time. And this is in a, in a period of, of life, of the world, where there was no welfare system, there was no bankruptcy. So if you were deeply, deeply in debt, 
and you wanted to survive and care for your family, one way you could do that is sell yourself into slavery for a particular period of time. That would allow you to pay off your debt. It's what we more talk about as indentured servitude or something like that. Uh, and again, it's helpful to kind of realize that's, in our minds, something very different, but in the Roman world, that kind of was all wrapped up into one. That particular situation, uh, looking much more like enlisting in the Marine Corps uh, than, than our, our notion or our, than the historical notion of what happened in the 18th, 19th century on a cotton plantation. Um, I mean, just think about that. Enlisting in the Marine Corps. Um, okay, here you are, a young man, and you're really worried about crushing, crushing college debt, uh, and and you're thinking, what's a way that you can that you can not be crushed and and impoverished, but you want to get ahead, and you think, I'm going to enlist. And by signing those papers, you essentially, for those four to six years, give up your freedom. I mean, that's that's what the military is. You have no freedom. You don't get to decide what you want to do, when you want to do it, or how you want to do it. They tell you, and you have no choice in the matter for that entire period of time. Um, But you do it voluntarily uh, with the hopes that there's even something better ahead. Now, it's not an exact analogy, but it's something that's a little closer to some portions of Roman slavery than what's typically in our in our minds. And we, we kind of put that in a different place, but they kind of lumped it together as a kind of catch-all category. Um, the, actually, the, the ESV uh, translation is trying to wrestle with this broad catch-all nature by, by using you know, different language throughout to translate the one, the one word. You'll find in the ESV, sometimes it's translated slave, sometimes servant, sometimes bond servant. It's not trying to play fast and loose. It's it's trying to wrestle with the fact that this is a, a very broad thing that has slightly different connotations in, in, different, in different settings. So in some situations, uh, Roman slavery uh, was, was uh, more like indentured servitude. But there were situations where it looked very much like what happened in, uh, in, in the Americas in the 18th, 19th century. Uh, but in other cases, slavery was frequently temporary. Uh, some sources I read said the typical period of service was seven years. Others said you were released at the age of 30, probably a combination of the two. Uh, you could buy your way out of, uh, out of bond service. Yes, servants were typically paid either as they went or at the end of their, of their term of service. The idea you could, you could uh, buy your way out. Uh, freed slaves became automatically Roman citizens. And this is why, in some cases, it became a, a path of upward mobility, the way you might say that, to get ahead, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. Um, that happened. In fact, it's in, an example of that is in your very Bible. You might remember in the book of Acts, Paul appears before the governor Felix. Felix was a former slave. Now he's a Roman governor. Yeah, Upward mobility, it happened. He became a Roman citizen and, and became a, in a position of great authority and power. Uh, that, is, uh, that is what could happen and, and did happen in the Roman world. Of course, the, the biggest difference between, between what uh, slavery looked like in the Roman world and what it looked like in the Americas is Roman slavery had nothing to do with race. It, it didn't have anything to do with the color of one's skin. It was not... Uh, supported by, backed up, or justified by some notion of 
of superiority of races or discrimination. It just wasn't present at all in Rome uh, in that period of time. You could walk down the street, and not that some didn't discriminate, they did, but it just didn't play into the system itself. You could walk down the street, and you wouldn't necessarily know who was a Roman freedman and who was a bondservant. Uh, that was part of what it looked like. Now, at the same time, we don't want to romanticize uh, the Roman world. Uh, slavery in the Roman system uh, was sometimes quite, quite awful, probably more often than not. And so, and so it did sometimes look just as bad as what happened in the Americas. Uh, and so, uh, but what we want to know here is it's just a broader category. Uh, much broader than we tend to think. That doesn't make it good or right, but it does help us understand a little bit of the world that Paul is speaking into. So context of, of the day. But now let's get into the context of the Bible. Now, whenever we, whenever we encounter a difficult passage of Scripture, it's a great opportunity to go back to kind of basic principles of how to understand your Bible. Um, and that, that's always a safe, a safe thing to do. So basic principles of understanding your Bible. So a couple of them are very helpful here. So here's one basic principle. Just because the Bible speaks of something doesn't mean it endorses it. Just because the Bible speaks of something doesn't mean it endorses it. Here's the clearest example, polygamy. You'll find polygamy spoken of uh, at various places of the Bible, even those we think of as Bible heroes. Uh, having multiple wives. But it doesn't mean the Bible endorses it. Just because David or Jacob had multiple wives doesn't mean the Bible's saying a big thumbs up, you do that too. In fact, if you read even more closely, you find out that all those situations turned out horribly, uh, and, and the details of Scripture speak very different about the nature of marriage from the very beginning. So just because the Bible speaks of something, describes it, doesn't mean it endorses it. And, uh, and, and so we can't go to, say, slavery and say, well, Abraham, hero of the faith, he had, he had a, a slave girl, Hagar. Clearly the Bible endorses slavery. No. Uh, read a little closer, and you realize even in that very passage, it does not turn out well for Abraham. It is not to his credit. And God does show up in that circumstance, but he shows up on behalf of the oppressed. Uh, to, to protect and guard and comfort. Uh, so just because the Bible speaks of something doesn't mean it endorses it. But of course, in this particular passage, we have to wrestle through the fact that Paul is giving commands. It's not just a, a narrative. He's commanding. So what do we do when we see Paul not saying what we kind of want him to say? Uh, you know, we, we kind of want Paul to say, Masters, free your slaves immediately. Slavery is evil. Paul, how come, how come you don't say that? You know, of course, it's even more. We believe the Bible is the word of God. How come the Holy Spirit doesn't say that? That's a good question. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, how can we begin to answer that? Again, we go to basic Bible principles. Here's one. We can, we can expect that our, that's the questions we have are not always going to be answered fully. Whenever we come to the Bible, the questions we have are not always going to be answered fully. Um, I might have really good questions, but sometimes it's not going to completely make sense to me. That's not the Bible's fault. It's the fact that I'm finite, 
And God doesn't reveal everything. He's quite honest about that. And, and I have to, at the end of the day, realize uh, that he is Lord, I'm not. His ways are higher than my ways. Uh, and, and I need to be okay with that. Uh, but it doesn't mean questions are bad ones or shouldn't be asked. And this actually is a good question. How come Paul doesn't condemn slavery here? Okay, knowing that we might not get the full, complete, ultimately satisfying to my, uh, to my senses answer, can we say something? Uh, again, we go back to basic Bible interpretation principles. Come across a hard passage, interpret scripture with scripture. Uh, use the context of the rest of the Bible to help you understand the more difficult one. In this case, the rest of Scripture and even the writings of the Apostle Paul help us fill in some of the details. Um, this isn't the only place that Paul talks about uh, bond servants or Roman slavery. In fact, in the two places where Paul, uh, where Paul actually specifically gets into the issue of freedom, in both of those cases, he says, freedom. 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, Paul says to slaves, if you have the opportunity to go free, take it. He's quite clear. Slaves, you have opportunity for freedom, take it. The other place where he specifically uh, uh, enters into the question of freedom is the book of Philemon, which we read most of this morning. Now, you might uh, know a little bit of the background there. There is, there is uh, uh, this, this slave, Onesimus, who runs away from his from his master, his master who's a Christian, Philemon, Onesimus runs away, and in the process of being away, gets converted, he comes to Christ, he ends up encountering the Apostle Paul, actually serving with Paul, he's a, he's a gospel worker uh, alongside of Paul, but here's Paul, he's sending, he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon uh, with this letter, and Paul has a very specific message to Philemon. Um, he wants Philemon to do it for all the right reasons. But, I, but if you look carefully at what he says, he seems quite clear. Philemon, you are to free this brother. Receive him back, no, not as a slave, but as a brother. Do what's required. Do what is good. He wants him to do it for the right reasons, motivated by the gospel. We'll see how that plays in a little bit later. Uh, but, but he is to receive him, not as a slave anymore. Uh, so... What that, what that tells us, the two places where Paul does directly address the issue of freedom, in both cases, he says freedom. There's another passage that's, that's helpful in Paul, and this one speaks directly to that notion of slavery that, that, is most, that we most associate in our own minds. Um, so it, it's 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. 1 Timothy 1, 10, there is Paul, he's making a whole list of, of evils that he says are absolutely in con in in, uh, in that are absolutely contrary to the gospel, absolutely contrary to the gospel, and he lists a whole bunch of things. And one of the things he lists is enslavers, enslavers, absolutely contrary to the gospel. He says enslavers. That is one who takes another person captive, um, absolutely contrary to the gospel evil. Um, now, Paul, of course, is a good Jew. He probably, as one who has studied and learned, probably has the Torah memorized, which is why I feel quite sure he has in the back of his mind 
the passage of the Old Testament Torah that deals with this very issue, uh, specifically Exodus 21. And there, Exodus 21, verse 16, says this, what Paul just kind of mentions quickly as enslavers, he here kind of fleshes out the details a little bit. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So here you have Old Testament civil law, the highest condemnation there is in Old Testament civil law, the death penalty. Uh, for who in this particular situation? The one who steals another human being, but also including the selling of that human being and the possession of the stolen. You got that? What's condemned there? Stealing, selling, and possessing of the, of the stolen. Which you then apply to our notions of slavery. That's the entire American slavery system right there. Stealing, selling, possessing of the stolen. And we've just seen the Bible condemns it. Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament. Um, now, there's more, there's more to wrestle with, but we're trying to understand the Bible context as we come to, to Ephesians. Uh, it's much broader than we think, but the Bible does say other things in other places uh, that, are, that are helpful and clear. One other aspect of context that's key to what Paul does in this passage, which is realizing how, how slavery fits into the story uh, of, the, of the scriptures, the story of the gospel. We've seen this throughout as Paul's addressing these various aspects of the household. He's, he's wanting individuals to think about how their lives tie into the greater story of scripture. And you think about the story of scripture, and the story of scripture is all about God setting the slaves free. That's the Bible storyline. It's pictured in quite literal terms in the Exodus, where there are God's people uh, enslaved under Pharaoh, uh, under his cruelty. And what does God do? We're first told that he hears the cry of the oppressed, and he comes to them, and he sets them free. Right? What's our language from the Ten Commandments? Out of the house of slavery, or out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He sets them free. But it's a particular kind of freedom. Uh, it's free from the, the bonds of slavery in order that they might serve the living and true God. And here, here we get a real challenge to our, our cultural notions of, of freedom. We tend to think, yeah, to be free means I get to do what I want. I get to do what I want, when I want, serve myself. And, and here, the story on the scripture is something very different. Yes, God comes to set us free from slavery, but free to serve the living and true God. That which is really true freedom, right? Because if I'm just set free to serve myself, that's actually a different form of slavery. As I'm enslaved to my own uh, sinful passions that are having me uh, headed toward condemnation. But here, what God says in the Exodus, right, setting them free in order they may serve the living and true God, that's what we were created for. Setting us free to be who we were created to be. Uh, to know the living and true God, that which is really life. Uh, serving him, not as, not as chattel, but as children of the living God. Pictured in the Exodus, but then Jesus comes to fulfill it. Jesus comes to accomplish this freedom. Not merely in temporary earthly circumstances, 
uh, but free so deeply and so expansively that it touches everything. It touches all the way to the depths of the human heart, full freedom, but also, upon the return of Christ, it reaches the very corners of the universe forever. Uh, and it all happens uh, through Jesus. Jesus arrives, God himself, and what does he at the very outset of his ministry announce? Luke 4, that he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. How does he accomplish that liberty to the captives? Well, he accomplishes that freedom by taking the form of a servant. And he shows up, God himself, to live the life of a slave, essentially. Coming not to be served, but to serve. And he, he washes his disciples' feet. That's the job that only slaves do. And he dies on the cross. That's a type of death that was reserved only for guilty slaves. Slaves who have committed capital crimes. Lives the life of a slave, dies the death of a slave. All to set us free. All to, all to bear our guilt. That which enshackles us. Uh, he, he lives and dies to bear it, to conquer it, to crush it, to, uh, to burst those bonds in order that he might set us free. Again, all freedom that's not just a temporary earthly one, but one that goes all the way down to the depths of our being, that we are, we are free in him right now through Christ, and that freedom that's going to extend to the furthest corners of the universe when he returns and makes that, that freedom permanent, abolishing all oppression and bursting every bond, physical and spiritual, for all eternity. There's the freedom that comes in Christ. Uh, that is the story of Scripture, that the setting of slaves free. And what we are as believers is those who have been drawn into that story. God, through faith in Christ, he, that story is our story. Uh, and, and it's a story that we live out no matter where we are. Uh, God, through faith in Christ, he has, he has set us free. So that we're free from the chains of our guilt and, and the death that we deserve. Free to serve, uh, not, not some cruel earthly master, but serve the living and true God. Not, not as chattel, but as his children. Uh, as, as the live loving father, as the one whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. Uh, we're drawn into that story. And that's where Paul's words come in. I realize we've taken a whole lot of time to talk about the context. We're going to go much faster here. But let's see how that bigger context then helps us understand what Paul wants to say. He wants to draw us and draw those he's speaking to in the first century world into that story. So his commands to bond servants first. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now, we already said that Paul elsewhere is quite clear, if a slave can obtain his freedom, he should do it. But what if a newly converted bondservant can't obtain his freedom? What is, what is that individual to do? Does, does that individual conclude, okay, I guess I really can't live as a Christian. I guess I can't really uh, live out that uh, that, that freedom story that I've been drawn into, not here, 
Not until some time in the future when my earthly circumstances change. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. You're a part of that story right now, even in the dark place where you find yourself, right in the midst of the, uh, of the, of the bondage that, that that servant is about. They can live out their freedom in Christ, freed from sin and death, freed to serve Christ. Paul says, that's what you're doing. Because you're no longer within that, drawn into that gospel story. You're no longer serving men. Now, ultimately, who you're serving is the Lord Jesus. You're serving, you're serving the Lord. Now, even as you wait for your earthly circumstances to catch up uh, with the freedom you already have, you get to live out that story now. You get to live out that story in the midst of the mess, keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus, which is why he says to them, you, you're serving Christ. That's why, uh, that's why you do it with, with fear and trembling. That, I think, rightly understood is not talking about uh, a, a fear of the, the earthly master, but actually uh, a, a reverence and awe towards God. He's the ultimate. Uh, he's the ultimate one uh, who, is our, who is our king. A reverence and awe towards him, uh, serving him with a sincere heart, not people-pleasing, right? Just doing a good job when someone else is looking, because he says, think of your true identity. Think of your forever identity. It's not wrapped up, he says to this servant, with your earthly circumstances. Now, it's wrapped up with who you are in Christ. And you get to live that out now as a servant of Christ. In other words, the Christian gospel works everywhere. That there's no dark place, there's no ugly circumstance where the power of God the power of the gospel doesn't free where the power of Christ doesn't work. Think of it. Down through history, it's more often than not that in the dark places that the majority of Christians have had to spend most of their earthly lives. More often than not, Christians have spent their earthly lives in the dark places, in a variety of different circumstances. And whether it's uh, first century bond servants in Rome, or under the persecution of the Caesars just a few years later, or closer to our day, imprisoned in the Soviet gulag, or under threat, or even enslaved in Muslim lands today, or in threat of communist leaders uh, in, in places of the world today, or just in everyday struggling dark places like, a, like a, a miserable job or a struggling marriage or battling cancer or, or fighting depression. Uh, more often than not, where Christians have had to spend their earthly circumstances is in the midst of very dark places. And what the good news of the gospel comes in and says is the gospel works there. That we don't have to wait. That the majority of believers down through the ages don't wait to begin to live out their story until earthly circumstances change. Now, God's quite clear. If you have the power to change your earthly circumstances biblically, do it. Paul says that to slaves. He says that to, to you in whatever circumstances. If you can change your earthly circumstances biblically, do it. That's good. And if you can be a part of someone else changing their earthly circumstances biblically, do that. That is good and right and just. But for the majority of believers down through the ages, those kinds of transforming of earthly circumstances just weren't possible. Not immediately. Not for much of their lives. But we don't have to wait 
to begin uh, to live out the good news. In fact, we are able to begin uh, living our, our freedom story right in the dark places. That's where we begin to exercise our true hope, our true joy. Uh, that that though, though from an earthly standpoint it might look like a mess, uh, we're, we're free in Christ. That we have a hope and a joy that transcends uh, what, what is around us earthly. We're, we're waiting, of course, for our, our, our earthly circumstances to catch up, and God promises that they will. There will be a transformed world. But in the meantime, the light of Christ shines, even in, in those darkest, the darkest of places. Rightly understood, that doesn't endorse the darkness. Actually, it, it undermines it. it. It takes away its power. It, it defangs it. It no longer can conquer our souls. So even as, as we look for opportunities uh, to improve earthly circumstances, uh, we're, we, we know that we're, we're free and living out that Jesus story in the midst of it. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us one way here. Realize that wherever you find yourself, ultimately, you're not working for earthly individuals. You're working for Christ. You're looking to him. You have this awe and service of a God who loves you, a God who is your father, a God who, who welcomes you, has set you free from sin and death, you keep your eyes on him. And no matter what the darkness around you is like, you're living out that forever identity. And it begins now. And then he commands masters. And I think here, too, you get to that undermining of the earthly uh, circumstances, I think, here, if these, if these uh, individuals are really paying attention. Um... Now, again, we've already said that Paul has spoken in other places of the freeing of slaves, of the, uh, the evils of enslaving. But even if a believer has a servant uh, that's more of an indentured servant, uh, not tied to the enslaving side of the, of the system, uh, even there, the gospel works. And it actually undermines the, the world's notions, transforms them. So Paul says to masters that they are to, they're to consider their real identity. And their real identity is not they're an authority in the world. Their real identity is they have, uh, they have a king, and it's Jesus. Their real forever gospel identity is that they've been set free to serve the living and true God, that they're a servant, and therefore right on par with that servant in their home. This is why they dare not threaten, they dare not mistreat, they dare not show partiality and pride, because they're realizing uh, that, the, that the servant's king and master is theirs too, and he's going to hold them to account. That living out their identity is, is realizing that they're under authority, and they need to live that out in their, in their home. This is true of every earthly authority, right? Whether it's a first century home with servants, a 21st century boss with employees, a church leader, a husband, a father. The gospel doesn't, doesn't trash positions of authority, but the gospel does transform our notions of authority. That they become places uh, not where we lord it over others. Now, that's how the Gentiles do it. That's how the, the, the world does authority, lording it over no, uh, what the gospel does is it gives us, in a position of authority, an opportunity to walk the path of Christ. An opportunity to embody our Lord, who came not to be served, but to serve. 
And that's where we live out uh, our leadership. Tough passage. Tough passage, tough questions. Uh, I am under no illusions that we've answered everything perfectly. Uh, I hope we've tried to address some of the difficulties. Um, But I hope, above all, what we've done is do what tough passages should always do, which is remind us of what the Bible really is all about. That the Bible really isn't uh, about answering all our questions. The Bible isn't uh, really about giving us a, a recipe for some earthly paradise. The Bible is designed to show us Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that there's life, and hope, and freedom, a freedom that starts here and only gets bigger through all eternity. So if nothing else, I hope you've seen Jesus this morning, that God who took on the form of a servant, uh, that one who, who bore our sin, that broke the chains of sin and death, that one in whom we have true freedom, freedom to do what we were created to do, which is serve the living and true God our Father, and it's a life and a joy and a freedom that starts here, uh, no matter where we are, and only gets better as God transforms his world when he returns. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your, your word. Thank you that your ways are higher than our ways, and we pray that you would give us understanding uh, to know what is true. And in those places where we uh, we, we cannot understand. We pray that you would allow us to, to submit ourselves uh, to your, your goodness and your care. And, and most of all, to trust in the Lord Jesus, the one who has come and has served us and sets us free. We pray in his name. Amen.